Hello, and welcome to The Great Collide, where we explore the intersection between politics and faith. I am Jasmine Taylor. And I'm Leanne Noland. The 2024 presidential election is shaping up to be one of the most divisive in American history. Despite statistics that say we're becoming a less religious nation, religion is still likely to play an outsized role in November. Tobin Miller-Shearer is professor and chair of the history department at the University of Montana and conducts research into the history of race and religion in the United States. He's here to break down the three major trends he sees in politics and religion. Let's just start off big here. Has religion always played a major role in American politics? The short answer is yes. But of course, we have to mediate that and position it in time and place because it has looked different at different times. That said, I'm suggesting there are some consistent friends that are worth paying attention to. Can't predict the future, but we can identify trends and see if they're going to be stable or not over time. And we hear a lot about evangelicals supporting Trump. Uh, Do we see a similar trend among progressive Christians? We, We absolutely see similar uses of religious resources. And that's the area that I've done a lot of study in and paid attention to that in a variety of settings, not only in the United States, but worldwide, and seen some of these trends emerging again and again. The one that I lead with in the article that is the basis of our conversation today is this repeated use of the threat of the end of the world if that particular candidate is not elected. We've seen that from progressive uh, progressive candidates. We've seen that from um, more conservative co- candidates and their supporters that this time it is the dire decision in front of us in terms of the presidential lecture, uh, election. Sometimes we see it in um, regional elections, but particularly on the national scale, that rhetoric pops up repeatedly. Why should this time we be more worried? Why should this year, why should this be the time when we should be more worried about it? I mean, on the one hand, given that I am a historian and we've been in other junctures in our life of a nation that have felt extremely dire, I'm not absolutely convinced that this is the moment that we have to be concerned about. That said, we are seeing some trends, particularly on attacks to the institution of democracy itself, that are very worrying. I um, am currently working on a biography of the African-American historian and civil rights activist, Vincent Harding. And he returned to the theme and is speaking and writing again and again that we have been in a process of experimenting with democracy. What we're seeing now in this phase of the experiment is that there are candidates and other pundits who are drawing on religious resources, not to suggest that we have a divine mandate for our democracy, but we have a divine mandate for challenges to that democracy. That's different. And that's worrying. We sort of talked about the the end of times and and many conservative Christians see that as kind of a positive development, that this is going to lead to Christ's 
second coming. So does that influence their view of this election? Since the turn of the 19th century, we have had debates within Christendom over what the end times will look like. We have these debates of millenarianism post-millenarianism, pre-millenarianism, amillennialism, and that has sort of um, captured the imagination of particularly evangelical communities as to is the uh, end times going to come and then everything will be made better, or are the end times going to come only after we have made the world better? And that sort of fundamental difference in worldview affects those debates about whether it's unrest in the Middle East, which some see as a sign of the apocalypse on the horizon. Um, But if you see that as the ushering in of the kingdom of this new Jerusalem, then yeah, you see that as a sign that that is imminent. You have a different worldview, which suggests that there is a role for humans to play in the building of that kingdom, well, you work against such apocalyptic signs around you. And so for that community who believe in that particular frame and understanding of the end times, a candidate who's speaking in ways that would potentially lead to that kind of apocalyptic catastrophe would welcome that rather than be deeply disturbed by it, according to those those respective worldviews. So you talk about that, that second trend where where you identify politicians as claiming that this is a divine mandate. Again, this isn't the first time that some Americans believe what happens in an election is ordained by God. But but is this year any different than any other year? Again, it's it's that shift to challenges to the, the practice and promotion of democracy that I find most disturbing. If we have a candidate who has claimed that he is going to operate as a dictator, that he was going to set aside some of the constitutional um, limits that are put around the, the exercise and office of the presidency, that's fundamentally disturbing. Um, I, I, I'm, as a historian, again, I'm always wanting to sort of mediate those claims. And, you know, there have been other times, every time we come to the end of a, of a, a thousand year period, we see those, you know, we came into 2000, that was the case. When we came in the 1900s, that was the case, where we had that similar sort of sense of dread and everything's going to, to uh, come to an end or literally go to hell. But um, I, I am disturbed by that, that that's entered. It's not just been sort of the realm of conspiracy theorists, but it has entered the public debate at a national level. That, per, that there are there are voices that we would have, Oh, even as recently as a decade ago, simply seen as marginal um, folks not worth listening to who are challenging the notion of democracy. But now we're seeing that creep towards the center, towards towards the, the, the body politic. And that worries me. I will say that for sure. Again, based on that sort of assessment of how that has shown up in the historical record over time. When Trump lost, uh, Republicans were largely in denial. Do you think that's because they believed that he had been elected by like a divine authority? I don't know what's in their heads. What I've seen as representatives of that group speak about 
there is a consistent stream of rhetoric that sees Trump's candidacy and presidency as being divinely mandated. That's been consistent. That continues. I think there are a variety of factors that were uh, coming to play around challenges to legitimacy of the last election. Um, that was a piece of it, not the only thing. Um, there, there are conspiracy theories, um, other very conservative voices um, in Congress and the Senate that were supporting that rhetoric. That's part of it that was not necessarily connected to religious ideology, but that was a big part of it. It gives a base a rationale and a legitimacy that they can call on a particular theological framework to say that is what's happening in this moment. That's how we understand these political events. Been stolen. It's been against the divine mandate. Yeah, that's consistent. That I can attest to for sure. So a third tenet that or a third trend that you identify is white supremacy and Christian nationalism. But aren't they a small subset of the electorate? They are. However, it is the relative silence, particularly by that evangelical community you just named, in the face of that, which I find most disturbing. We, at least there has been a commitment to celebrating many kinds of diversity, particularly racial diversity, that we saw in the evangelical community. Think the Promise Keepers, for instance, huge movement at inviting men, particularly focused on white men and black men to come together across racial lines. That has just seeped away. And the particularly in the person of former President Donald Trump, there has been both a, a consistent alignment with those voices at points, even hiring of avowed white supremacists onto his staff and um, both dog whistling and out overt uh, references to the, that community um, to, for example, stand back and stand ready in a reference to the Proud Boys during this 2020 presidential debate. That's highly disturbing. But we didn't see that white evangelical community having a full-throated denouncement of that. It just was not there. The, the, the trend here is one of silence and acquiescence to that alignment with, admittedly, a smaller component. The Christian identity movement, groups like the Proud Boys, the alt-right movement, have connection to religious ideology. And that's been a big part of that, um, that movement. And again, the very fact that they were drawing on those Christian resources, you would expect evangelical leaders to distance themselves and to outright, outright denounce that alignment within the Trump um, administration. White Americans, it's thought, will likely become a minority by around 2045. And so isn't embracing white supremacy a long-term losing strategy for these people? The way I talk about what I and my, many of my colleagues describe as a resurgency of public-facing white supremacy is not a unique occurrence, but one that has, as I said, surged over time. So think 1920s, the KKK has a huge march in Washington, D.C. They're backing candidates 
in many northern states. Indiana had a number of KKK-backed um, uh, candidates. That was a resurgence. What we are, I think, seeing here, well, I don't know what we're seeing here. My, on my more optimistic days, I say, as you suggest, this is the last gasp of that white supremacist rhetoric as we're on the cusp of a major demographic shift. Other parts of me thinks, well, there have been points in the past where the white community, and particularly those who have held powder, power, have done everything within their ability to hold on to that. And that's resulted in disturbing trends. Um, think of lynching post uh, Reconstruction era. Think of the rise of the first KK during Reconstruction, the reenactment of the Black Codes after the ending of the process of enslavement. Those were eventually undercut and overcome. We have no guarantees that will happen this time. Um, I'm, like I said, on my better days, I'm hopeful that the demographics will indeed shift in that way. But I mean, there, there are other unknowns about how white identity itself will be reconfigured in order to hold on to that power. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if we look at the way the Census Bureau over time has shifted its categories, we have seen a capture of groups who had previously not been considered white into that white identity as a way to broaden that base. Italians were not always considered white. Um, Irish were not always considered white. I wonder about white identity members of the Latinx community. Is that going to be a part of shifting and reconfiguring what it means to be white so that those who have traditionally been part of that uh, community by broadening it slightly can hold on to power? Um, religious rhetoric has been part of that in many times uh, along the way. Um, and we will see it. That's one of the things I'm watching very closely for in this particular moment as we see that demographic shift. And I think this rise and resurgence of white supremacy is intrinsically tied to this point of destabilization about the demographic majority in this country. 24% of Americans identify as evangelicals and favor Trump. However, 28% of our population has no religious affiliation. What role do those nuns play in this election? That's going to be the factor, right? It's going to be one of the critical factors as to how those nuns are pushed away by, for example, the evidence of religious rhetoric, or are they going to be drawn in even though they don't have that institutional affiliation? That's the unknown here. Um, I think other demographics are going to change into that. We've talked about racial identity. That's going to be one. Um, we talk about class affiliation. That's going to figure into this as well. Um, how the interests of that community are amplified or dampened by these religious trends that I'm identified is, an, I think, an unknown at this point. Um, it's another one of those areas that in my opinion, don't make the outcome of this election um, clear. That there are points where people can go either way. Religion's going to play a role, not the only role. I keep coming back to Charles Beard's analysis that it's really only ever about the economy. 
Look at the gas prices. Look at the food prices. That's going to play a huge role as the people think that a new administration will raise those prices or lower them. That's not religious, um, but it's definitely going to be part of it. All of these factors together. I, I, As a historian, I wish sometimes that I could make predictions more clearly based on what I know of the past. But inevitably, it makes my predictions all the more muddled because the past is often quite muddled and complex and difficult to parse from our um, present perspective. So I don't, I don't have the, the prognostication abilities that I wish I did. Tobin, thank you for this great discussion. Do you have any closing remarks you'd like to share with our, with our listeners today? Well, perhaps just to say that what we see happening in the U.S. is not particularly unique in the international perspective. And the book I've written on religious resources and social change movements, I look at the use of religious resources and the solidarity movement in Poland, the Black Madonna being brought around as a, both a political and a religious object. Um, I look at Gandhi's use of fasting. I look at the South African use of religious music and religious garb in the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, this is a constant connection between these forces because they both are ultimately about powerful creating forces of identity. Religion plays that role. Politics play that role. You bring them together. You get a powerful mix. Often unpredictable, but the mixing itself is almost guaranteed. Well, Tobin, thank you again for this look ahead at what promises to be a long election season. <laughs> so be sure to download all of our Great Collide episodes, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. The Great Collide is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm Leanne Noland. And I'm Jasmine Taylor. Keep, Keep the, the faith. faith.